to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Ezekiel 40 through 48. And the last time, the message was titled, Death to Life. Now, it's interesting, in Ezekiel 37, right, we know about the bones coming together. If you've been a Christian for a while, we know about the 1948 regeneration of the nation of Israel. These are all exciting things, but hidden in there, actually, what God speaks of it really blatantly, is what's more important to him is the individual turn from death to life. And that's why I named it that. So it's great to see nations have national repentance and all this kind of stuff. But God is a personal God. So don't miss what's in there is that he wants us to be saved. He wants us to be born again of the spirit. And it's kind of really cool because the icing on the cake when we covered Ezekiel 37 was a young man who came forward, right, to receive Jesus at this very church after the message was over. Uh, today, the message is titled Ezekiel's Temple. Now, that's a phrase, Ezekiel's Temple. It's actually a misnomer. It's not Ezekiel's Temple, but everybody refers to it because it's in the book of Ezekiel. So, for the sake of ease, I will refer to it as Ezekiel's Temple. But again, the message is titled, Which Temple? What even is a temple? You know, I hear some people say on Saturday, I'm going to temple. What does this all mean? Right? So, we're going to explain all this. And... I got to be honest with you, we're going to cover this topically because even among Bible scholars, right, rabbis, it's the Old Testament, disagree with what is this going to look like. Christian Bible teachers disagree with what is this going to, it's not a bad thing. You know what I love about God? He has the right to be God. He can say to us, hey, like little children, I'm going to show you something. It's going to be amazing, but I'm not going to give you all the details, but you'll see it when it happens. Right? It's sort of like a little kid with a dad who's, I got a present for you, and the kids kind of have some ideas. But dad's like, you're going to see it when you see it. So I don't have to be that guy who has all the answers, because specifically in 20 years, this is probably the hardest portion of scripture I've ever taught. Um, but I let God be God, and I will tell you exactly what something is. When it says it in the scripture, when it's a little bit of a mystery, I say this is what it could look like, but it remains to be seen. And we're going to see this in five parts, right? So these nine chapters, uh, it was kind of funny because I have two friends, probably more, that are uh, Bible scholars. They They both hold doctorates in theology. And, you know, I just, one of them had already taught this uh, a while ago. And I was just saying, hey, you know, I'm kind of looking at this and I'm looking at that. And this is what I think about this. And I got to be honest with you, after talking uh, with two doctors of theology, we still didn't solve anything. (laughs) So if you're new to the Bible, we're also going to get into what is the temple and why did it even exist? And again, we're going to go through this. So the first part is the different views on Ezekiel's temple. So let me just give you. Let me just give you the different views theologically. A is the symbolic Christian view, which means the temple is symbolic of the coming Christian church. B is the spiritualized view, 
everything in the temple, the, the, the scriptures, has a spiritual esoteric meaning. The problem with those two views is there's way too much detail in these nine chapters for something that's just a metaphor or symbolic. C, the literal prophetic view, which is where, now remember in Ezekiel's day, they were taken over by Babylon. The next empire to come was the Medo-Persians. When they, the Medo-Persians did come, they were going to affectionately allow the Jews to go back and rebuild this temple because the Babylonians destroyed the first one. So the literal prophetic view says that, well, this all happened under the Medo-Persians. Well, there's a problem with that because if you look at all the details, not all of those things came to pass. D, the apocalyptic view, which I think is bizarre and not even worth discussing. You can look at that on your own time, but it's in there. Uh, E, the dispensationalist view, that the temple is in the millennial kingdom and it's literal and it's no different than the former temples. And an offshoot view is in the dispensational view is some people believe, well, it's in eternity. And some people believe, no, it's not in eternity. So there's actually a Roman numeral one and Roman numeral two to that one. And F, the memorial view, that the temple is in the millennial kingdom, but it's only for memorial purposes. It had no spiritual efficacy as the former temples did. The problem with the last two views is the priesthood and the sacrifices doesn't really make too much sense under the dispensation of grace and Christ fulfilling all these things. Then the question becomes, which temple are we talking about? Just so you know, the... The first temple was built under King Solomon, Jerusalem, destroyed under the Babylonians. The second temple was under the Medo-Persian oversight, was destroyed by the Romans, A.D. 66 through 70. Somewhere in that was what they call Herod's temple. Herod didn't knock the temple down and store it all over. All he did was he added to it, made it more grandiose. So some people say, well, there's been three temples. There's really only been two temples with the second one having modifications. So, which temple, right? A, temple under the oversight of the Medo-Persians, some believe that. B, it's the third temple, which hasn't been built yet. The temple mount is bare regarding a temple in Jerusalem. There's a wall left, and it's the Wailing Wall, and if you look, you're familiar with overseas news, you understand that. Um, C, well, is it a fourth temple? Because surely a third temple has to be destroyed because it will be defiled, under this coming, right, future to 2021, globalist, aggressive, um, hey, kumbaya, all the countries get together, globalism, and then he turns and he becomes a fascist, who we know is the Antichrist. Only Now more than ever do we realize that that can be something that could take place in our near future. D, some don't see it as a literal temple at all. Um, and I'm sure there's 10 other views that I haven't covered. Have I thoroughly confused you yet this morning? Question mark. And if I have, that's actually good. Because when we actually go through this, what you find is, let God be God. When we see it, we'll know it, we'll figure it out. And, you know, it, it could be a combination of some of it is, a lot of it is, I think, physical and literal. But there's probably some symbolic uh, veins to it, Right. Okay, so two out of five is the temple will be rebuilt. That we do know. We do know. So there's things we don't know. Then there's things that we do know. When the Lord comes for his saints and calls us home, whenever that may be, that's in his timing, not for anyone to set dates. 
The rest of the world who we've probably witnessed to and told them that these things will happen, when they see the construction on the Temple Mount, they'll be like, oh, wow, those Christians weren't so kooky after all. They are actually building. How did they know this? And they'll be scrambling for Bibles, and hopefully they get saved too. If you don't take the first bus, take the second bus, but you should really take the first bus. It's a lot easier. So the temple will be rebuilt. Now, when I covered the book of Revelation, we see this in Revelation 11, stark parallels to what we see in chapter 40 in Ezekiel. This angel with the measuring rod uh, taking measurements. Revelation 11, Ezekiel 40, very similar. Verses 5 through 27, he dedicates to measuring the outer court. We know that the temple had courts to it. Verses 28 through 47, dedicated to measuring the inner court. And verses 48 through 49 covers the temple vestibule. Chapter 41. Just so you know, when we go through Luke, we're going to read it. This is just, honestly, these nine chapters are for theology students. They're for, you know, if I was to put you through nine weeks of reading all the laborious and tedious details, you might not like me too much. So, uh, but no, it's really, it's, I, I read it all and you should read it all and certainly send me an email or talk to me about it. If you have some questions about it, actually, I think what would be really cool is next Wednesday, we have our Q and a in the evening. So if you have any questions, right, go write them on those pink cards, put them in the box and we'll cover them during the Q and a, I think some people have already done that. Okay, chapter 41, dedicated to the temple building itself. What is the temple? What's the temple? Just like Ezekiel's temple is sort of a misnomer, when someone says, I'm going to temple, maybe on a Saturday, right? Um, Or, yeah, I think Saturday. That also is a misnomer. They're actually going to synagogue, and it's very interesting how things happened over the years. When the first temple was destroyed, synagogues sprang up because people were saying, hey, we go to this place to worship and those Babylonians destroyed it. What are we going to do now? So Jewish people got together and they would go to a person's house or they would build a structure and they would worship together. And that's carried through to today, right? Because if you look in Jerusalem, there is no temple, right? So they say, well, we'll go into temple, understand But there was only one temple, could only be one temple in one place at any given point in time because it had to be according to God's standards. So let's look at this. The temple. Well, (laughs) to add more to the mix is that the temple is the permanent structure. So Solomon lays the foundation. He gets these uh, cedar trees, the gold, the silver, the stones. This thing is immovable. This thing is thousands of tons of beauty, of of gold and silver and, and stone and, and, and cedar. Um, but that's a permanent structure. The tabernacle preceded the temple. And this is good. People have questions. What is the tabernacle? I've always heard that. So the tabernacle was the portable structure. This was what God told Moses to fashion, right? And it was pretty amazing, maybe even more than the temple in the sense that this place of worship that had separate rooms and courts and all, they would, they would fold it up like a tent. I mean, a big tent carried by many people and pack animals, move through the wilderness wanderings, and then set up this tabernacle again, the place of meeting where God met his people. So the temple is a permanent structure. The tabernacle preceded it was a temporary structure. And I'm going to get to why even bother having these things, right? 
So, what was its purpose? Well, the purpose is multifold. Now, remember, this is pre-Christ. This is pre-God the Son coming to the earth to fellowship with us, to raise the dead, to heal, to teach, to die for our sins. So, we're going back. Okay, we're going backwards. Few things. Number one, it was a place for a holy God to meet sinful humans. It was a place of assembly where the people would assemble. And it was a propitiation for the sins of the people. You know, God would, would make these wonderful feasts and festivals. And some of them you had to actually, again, this is Old Testament. You had to actually make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And this kind of jives with Roman history. When we study Roman history and the, some of the things that happened and Jesus' crucifixion and why were there so many crowds. We're going to get to that in Luke. But where was I? <laughs> this is, this is, it is just so much to this. It's, it's, it's so heavy. So what God would do is he would have these feasts and festivals and it was kind of neat because God would say, well, God's everywhere. He's omnipresent, but he also, his Shekinah glory, his physical presence would be in this building and people could see it. Like the prophets would speak about it coming and sometimes going, but then we, he would do this. I'm going to meet you here. And then bring everybody together. So it was kind of neat. So the feasts were, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, even today, it's fun to come together with those we love to eat and, and talk and fellowship and, and the hours tick by over the night because you're having such a good time. So what God would do is he would bring himself to the people and bring the people to the people and everybody would be together. Now, this is the interesting thing about God, as many interesting things about God, is sin separates us from God. And when we mess up, God is always there to pick up the pieces. He's a loving God. He's a loving father, a loving creator. So when you look at the sin separation in Genesis, there's a problem. Romans 5, when sin entered the world, death entered the world, separation from God. So what does God do? He, he institutes these layers of him initiating the reconciliation between God and people. Isn't that amazing? So let me give you a few layers. There's three layers, the way I see it, is number one, when you look at the Old Testament, you saw the miracles, you saw the prophets, you saw incredible manifestations in the skies, and God would be saying to his people, you know, this is a symbol that you always know that I'm with you. The tabernacle. So even though the, the Jewish people would wander through the deserts, uh, that God was there with them through that trek, which they could have thought was lonely, but he was always there with them. So you have that in the Old Testament. That's layer one, God getting close to people again, right? We don't have the ability to get close to him. He's God. He's the one who initiates it, especially when we're in sin. Two, the second layer is now what happens in the first century. You have God the Son comes down from eternity, from his lofty throne, takes the form of a person, of a man, in the line of Adam to die for our sins. God seals us with his Holy Spirit. A part of God resides in us when we receive Christ as our Savior. So you think, you think well, that's really great. Yeah, but it gets better. There's a third layer, right, which is our future which I covered in Revelation. This is amazing. The new heavens, the new earth, Revelation 21, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, new bodies. These bodies won't die anymore. COVID, who cares? Cancer, no way. Nothing is going to affect us when we have these new eternal bodies that never die. That's going to be an exciting thing. No more sin, no more separation from God. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 21, God says that he will personally wipe away every tear from our eyes. No more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. 
No more cancer, no PT, PTSD, no emotional issues, no depression. None of these things exist anymore. Now, that is a future fulfillment, and that's exciting, isn't it? Nothing to separate us from that, that close uh, communion with us and our creator. So that's coming. And when we talk about the millennial kingdom, people will say, what are you talking about? It's not just for millennials, okay? The millennial kingdom is this thousand-year period, right? We have to take the culture words and move them aside because the Bible came first. This thousand-year period where Christ returns to the earth to reign. What a great time. No more war. No more animals, uh, you know, prey and predator. They're all getting along with each other. Um, a lot of really neat things are coming. So this is exciting. Because God is a personal God, and he wants to be close to us. Amen? The way we get close to him today is to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Because John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Okay. Chapter 42. We read about the chamber in the outer court in the temple, in Ezekiel's temple, verses 15 through 20. We read about the place of separation. Now, I say this because I have two scriptures to read from the New Testament. I say this because for those of you that, and, and I have my, my students of the Bible who insist on figuring what this is what this is all about and where it fits in and what it actually looks like. Just make sure you put it up against established scripture and it doesn't, um, it doesn't contradict what's already there. So whatever view we take has to jive with other scripture that's already out there. And what do I mean by that? With the temple had places of separation, right? Remember going back to the old Testament Um, in Galatians three 28, it says there is neither Jew nor Greek, And back in those days, right, today everything in America is black versus white, like Republican versus Democrat, the vaccinated versus, uh, leaders love to divide people, okay? Back then it was, well, you're either a Jew or you're a Greek, right, or a Grecian or Hellenistic, um, Greco-Roman. There's neither slave nor free. There was slavery in the Roman Empire, and people marveled because those people who were considered slaves were being fellowshipped with by free people. So in, in the tent of Christianity, there was no difference between slave and free. They, were, they all had the same privileges. Pretty, pretty neat. There's neither male nor female. Again, great dichotomy in this Greco-Roman world. Paul was saying, you, you better get this straight because we, when we come under the tent of Christ, there is no division. We're all together, right? Uh, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So that's Galatians 3.28. Now in Revelation 7.9, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. So John sees these things in, in Revelation, and he says, There's all these nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. So in the, the dispensation of Christ, we don't go back into divisiveness, into division. And I'll tell you what, it, just bringing us to today's culture, there's so much division in our, our culture, and I think that... If America was to fracture, I don't think it would be from the outside. I think it would be from the inside. You can already see the seeds being sown of that. But as Christians, I prefer not to sit on the couch and yell at the television. I actually go out and try to reconcile people to each other. 
you know, it's like, well, how could you be so optimistic? Well, how could you be like, no, you really don't see a difference in people? No, I don't. Because my Lord doesn't see a difference in people. We're the ones as believers that should be out on the front lines reconciling. Talk about racial uh, reconciliation, equity, all that stuff. Well, let me tell you what my Lord says about people. We may look different. We may act different. We may eat different foods, speak different languages. But under Christ, we're all together. And, and that's the truth. I mean, that is, that's really the message that we should be understanding in American culture. Amen. In verse chapter 43, the return of the glory of God to the temple in addition to the sacrifices. I'll get to that. Three out of five is the priests and the sin offerings, question mark. So if you've studied the Bible for a long time, when you read about Ezekiel's temple, you say, wait a minute, there's priests. But since Christ, there's no need for priests anymore. Because he fulfilled that role. He was the ultimate high priest. There's sacrifices. Wait a minute. Jesus offered himself once as the ultimate sacrifice. So Jesus did so many things. Jesus was the mediator. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus was the priest who offered the sacrifice. Only God could, could do these things. No man or woman could fulfill this role. That's why it's so important to trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. So chapter 44, we see the duties of the temple priests. We see in verse 9, and indicates a separation regarding the foreigner and the uncircumcised. However, in Acts 15, in the Jerusalem council, listen, I am, I am so cool with every single one of you sending me questions because this stuff is not easy. It's almost like when you go through this, you're really taking from Genesis to Revelation and putting it all in context together to understand this, Right? In Acts 15, now this might be a shocker to some of you, that the church, the Christian church, started out as almost 100% Jewish. <gasps> really? It seems like there's mostly Gentiles today. Yeah, it does. Many millions of Jewish believers around the world today. There's many Jewish people in this church. Church isn't that big that have received Jesus as their savior. So in Israel, there's a huge movement of Messianic Jewish people. Like they are coming to Christ in droves. In Zechariah, we're going to see a national uh, of Israel coming to Christ when they see him in the clouds of the air. It's going to be very exciting. So in Acts 15, there was a dilemma. So all these Jewish leaders got together because it was the church, right? And they said, I'm paraphrasing, all these Greeks and Romans and Scythians and all these people want to come and join our movement. So the question was, what do we make them do or do we make them do anything to become Christians? Some of the people thought, well, we have to make them. They were confused. We have to make them Jewish first. But the Holy Spirit guided the church and said, listen, just let them come in. They just have to receive Jesus. When you look at Acts 15, the requirements were almost nil. So, again, there's no separation. There's no need to separate people into classes or groups. Right? They established this in the very beginning. Chapter 45, the land of the temple priests, verses 9 through 25, the offerings of the temple priests. However, Revelation 1.6 says that Christ made us a, a kingdom of priests. Right? Everybody here. I'm, so what I'm trying to do is, is show you pre-Christ and post-Christ. I'm, I'm comparing the two. God has made us a kingdom of priests. 
male, female, young, old, if you are in Christ, you have sort of figuratively become part of the priesthood. And that means that in the Old Testament, right, the priests and the Levites, they would actually go out and they would teach the villages. You know, they, they memorized the scripture. Um, they would try to remove any ignorance. They would have like their schools and they would teach people about God. They would teach the word of God, right? They would help people to understand God and, and, and move closer to, to him. And you know what's really neat? We have that role as Christians today. That's why it says this in Revelation 1. As we go out into the world and someone doesn't know anything about God, we help them to get closer to God. And, and sometimes it's just by experience. Like I can just say, well, this was my journey. This is Pastor Joe's journey before he was a Christian and now becomes a Christian. And you kind of help them along, right? It's pretty neat. However, as far as a, a mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5 says that Christ is the only medi- mediator between God and the people. So there's no need for an official priesthood because Christ fulfills that role, Right? So again, where does Ezekiel's temple fit? And my answer to you is, I don't know. I don't like saying that that much, but in this portion of scripture, so my friend, who's a, he has a doctor in theology, he goes, man, that was one of the hardest books I've ever taught. I said, yeah, I'm living it. <laughs> so um, please ask questions because this is really, really heavy stuff. Now, if you're going to form an opinion on Ezekiel's temple, you have to read Hebrews Because Hebrews tells us, chapters 5 through 10, the imperfection of the human priesthood, the imperfection of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. As a matter of fact, in Jeremiah 31, the Old Testament embedded in the Old Testament is scripture saying there's a New Testament coming. You people need to look out for this. That's why when Jesus walked the earth, all these people started flocking to him because they knew the scripture. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, that a new covenant, a new testament was coming. Because people say, this is crazy. You know, all these people are attracted to Jesus. He's drawing these crowds. Because when he, when he was telegraphing to them that he was the coming the, the Messiah, they're like, well, this is what the Old Testament told us. Right? The old sacrificial system, Hebrews tells us, was, was not perfect. The, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sins. It was just an atoning sacrifice, a temporary system, until Christ came. Now, here's another thing for those that... Um, want to hold so almost worship relics and people do that today right you ever hear um somewhere so supposedly some church has john the baptist bones um another church says they have um the wood that jesus was crucified on so many people have said that that cross must have been a mile high <laughs> you know no we we have the, this piece of wood you have to come to our church give money and and you can touch the piece of wood god doesn't want us to deal with relics He wants us to have a personal relationship with him. Amen. As a matter of fact, two times, and God said this, he allowed this system to be dismantled, one by the Babylonians and one by the Romans. And he said that this would happen because the religious system got too corrupt and they were worshiping relics and things instead of worshiping God. So there's a lot to this. Okay, so some of my, uh, so again, in in having these discussions with friends of mine who teach the Bible, some say, well, this is a literal temple and these are memorial sacrifices, sort of like communion. There's a flaw with that theory. There's, There's a flaw. The flaw is that when we 
we're going to take up communion today. What's that for? It is a memorial sacrifice. You're not actually drinking Christ's blood or eating his flesh. It's, it's, you know, he said that the, that it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. So we memorialize communion to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, the issue with Ezekiel's temple is if we are in chronological order moving forward towards this dispensation, towards the millennial kingdom, towards, you know, uh, progress, then why would we memorialize something that goes backwards? Communion memorials something that went forward from the time it was instituted. So I, there's some flaws with that theory. Again, if you're not a Bible student, don't worry about it. But I know my people who are really interested in Ezekiel's temple, we're going to have some very interesting discussions afterwards. Okay, four out of five is characteristics of Ezekiel's temple we're not familiar with. Chapter 46, the prince's role. Who's the prince? My doctorates in theology? I don't know. (laughs) You know, is it Jesus? No, it talks about his children. Uh, Is it David? I don't see it. When you look at the Old Testament and it speaks about this millennial kingdom and it speaks about um, Christ reigning, which there's there's no hidden, there's no secret. The Messiah will reign. Christ will reign. And we see that David is sort of like a, King David is a vice regent. He reigns under him. No secret. It's spoken of. It's plain language. The prince, we don't know who this is. He's probably some type of regent. We'll find out when we get there. (laughs) Chapter 47. There's a a river that flows from the temple with healing powers. In Revelation 22, we see the river of water of life proceeding from God's throne and from Christ. Is it symbolic? Seems to go into the Dead Sea and, and fix the, um, the saline count. And uh, now the fish are thriving and, you know, there's um, aerobic activity and all that stuff going on there. Um, that's a fascinating thing. However, when I covered the entire chapter of, or the entire book of Revelation, we don't see this in there. We see the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. We see... In Revelation, right, the, the water of life that comes that comes out, we don't see the temple at all. So, just he's going to be coming in February to teach, uh, Doctor Jason Falzerano. So he's one of my my best good buddies that we we talk about a lot of this stuff. I'm like, bro, do you see this thing in eternity? He said, no. I said, good, <laughs> because I'm, I'm I'm in line with you. Um, this Ezekiel's temple seems like uh, this this. What, why, where, how, you know, I'm having trouble with this. However and why it's put there, it's put there for a time, it's put there for a season, it's put there for a reason, but it doesn't go into eternity, right? Even in the thousand years, there's those that have still refused to trust Christ as their Lord and Savior. So that's not the last dispensation. It is future from us, but it isn't the last thing that happens. It's not eternity, Okay. Even Acts 7, it says that God is not forced to dwell in a house with human hands. So remember, when the people would even see God's glory, you know, or the prophets would see it it come in, or the people did too. When the priests um, dedicated Solomon's temple, there was this smoke or mist, and it was, it was palpable. 
And the priests were so overwhelmed by it that they, they actually ran out of the temple. God was coming in. He was moving in, so to speak. And he just is so magnificent that it was a good thing. But they also couldn't be there while his presence was really enveloping that temple. So is that a contradiction? The answer is no. God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. However, he can say, a part of my physical manifestation will be in this temple. Both things can happen at the same time, right? God is here. God is in India. God is in Africa. God is in China. God is in North Korea. God is in outer space. God is in the center of the earth. God is wherever he wants to be because he's God. So let's keep that in mind. When we start to get these things in our head, it's almost like, you know, people say, I love it. When I run into somebody that goes, oh, Christianity is a fairy tale. I'm like, how much time do you have to talk about this? You know what I'm saying? Did you know? Did you know? Did you, you start going into the depth and the complexities of God, what he's established, why he's established things. And people go, wow, I didn't, I never knew that. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Now, if you're new to the church, if you're new on live stream, if you just tuned in and said, wow, is every sermon going to be like this? No, <laughs> we're going to be in the gospel of Luke. It's going to be a lot more digestible. Um, but what do you need to know? If you don't know God, you just need to know, you don't have to memorize this stuff. There's not going to be a quiz at the end. You just need to know that Jesus died for your sins. So can I tell you some, the largest, I'm going to guess that the largest amount of people that came to Christ in the first century were uneducated and they got the concept. So if they got the concept, anybody can get the concept. If little children in the children's ministry, when we teach them, can get these concepts, anybody can get it. That's how good our God is. He doesn't make us climb this ladder of, of salvation. Jesus already did the heavy lifting. You just have to trust in Christ as your savior. This is just where we are in the scripture. Okay. All right. Chapter 48, the visions of the land, the gates in the city, and the name of the city. Five, fulfillment in Jesus. So my point to you is I don't know how all of this is going to play out, but I do know the concepts that are fulfilled in Jesus. Right? When you're looking for God, all the roads have to lead back to Christ. If you're looking for God, he is the way, the truth, and the life. A, when we look at all the sin sacrifices in the Old Testament, we know that Jesus Christ offered himself once as the last and ultimate and final fulfillment of the sin offerings. That's why we trust in Christ. People say, what, what is this trusting in Christ stuff? Because he died for our sins. Sins separate us from God. Jesus paves the way to reconcile us back to God. B, when we look at the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, we know that Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament tells the Jewish people to look for the fulfillment in the Messiah. C, when we look at the high priest in the Old Testament, we know that Jesus Christ was the ultimate and the fulfillment of the last high priest. You can find that in Hebrews 7, 26 through 27. D, when we look at the presence of God in the Shekinah, in the glory of God, in the Kabad, right? Coming into the temple or, or doing these manifestations and opening the Red Sea and all this kind of stuff. The manifestations in the Old Testament, we know 
that Jesus is the fulfillment of knowing that we're close to God. Remember, as believers, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, everything, well, many things in American culture are based on feelings and popularity polls. Sometimes we can feel alone, but if we really have accepted Christ, even though we may feel a certain way, God is always with us. We are never, ever alone. E, when we look at sin separating us from God and the waves or the layers of getting closer, God getting closer to us, we see the fulfillment in Jesus and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus fulfilled multiple roles, high priest, sin sacrifice, mediator, savior, and I'm sure there's some I'm forgetting. But doesn't it go to show how much God loves you? So even those people in the first century, the uneducated, who maybe they tried to study the Old Testament, maybe they tried to understand the deeper things of God and they failed. Maybe they couldn't wrap their minds around it. You're going to see as we go through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus made it so simple. He even used parables. He used metaphors. And it it didn't matter if you had no education. You couldn't read or write. You got what Jesus was saying. He was so kind. He was so patient with people. And he's like that with us too. So as I said before, I don't see Ezekiel's temple. If you ask me my personal opinion, honestly, I don't even want to say because because I'm really not sure. And I don't want to steer you in one direction or the other. But I do know that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything we see prior to the New Testament. I do know that the more we study the Bible, the more we understand that God desires a personal relationship with us. And that's why he sent his son. And what better way to start the new year? (laughs) I went to the gym yesterday. It's January. You know, it's exactly, it's packed. You know what I'm saying? And it's going to be like that until the middle of March. You know, I, and I'm already seeing on social media, oh, I'm going to try to quit smoking. I'm going to try to diet. I'm going to try to go to the gym. I just know that mid-March, a lot of these resolutions flat dead. But, but if your desire is to get closer to God, that doesn't have to fizzle out. That can carry you all the way through this life and into eternity. You know, and, and I, I have to smile about that is that because God doesn't, he doesn't have us do it alone. He helps us. He encourages us. He ministers to us. He forgives our sins, right? He, he does things to, to help us to, to, to get even closer to him, right? When he was doing a sacrifice, um, I believe it was with Abraham, and he did the, the sacrifice, right? And he, he, God walked through it, and then he woke Abraham up. He wakes up, he comes out of anesthesia, and God took care of it. He did it all. Wow, that's our God. That's why we have Jesus. So I just want to encourage you that, is that your God loves you. He's not going to force you, but he did send Jesus into the world to die for your sins and to help you and me get closer to him. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. 
You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.